Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. Uh, this is going to be a rebroadcast episode originally recorded with my father, Jeff. First, some apologies for being a bit slack on posting some new episodes. I've recently taken on some extra um, responsibilities at, in my uh, job, so I've been pretty much under the pump. I'm also, uh, at the moment, trying to work on some new projects, so that's taking up a lot of my time and uh, energy. So in the near future, I'll probably be posting more rebroadcast episodes um, from the back catalogue, and really that was my intention of uh, relaunching the podcast was to make sure the back catalogue was archived uh, and up on, available for people on the web. Um, I've still got a couple of ideas for some new episodes that I do want to post, but they probably won't be in the normal uh, schedule of a rebroadcast episode, then an original, then a rebroadcast, and so on. So... In the near future, there'll probably be a few more um, rebroadcast episodes, uh, but I do still want to um, make some new episodes with Ben, um, my new co-host, because I've got some new ideas and I really enjoy posting podcasts. And I enjoy editing audio and all that kind of stuff. So, but just at the moment, um, a bit under the pump. So anyway, um, that's enough from me, and let's get on with the uh, episode. Science has sent orbiters to Neptune, eradicated smallpox, and created a supercomputer that can do 60 trillion calculations per second. Science frees us from superstition and dogma and enables us to base our knowledge on evidence. Well, most of us. There are two ways of looking at the world, through faith and superstition, or through the rigors of logic, observation and evidence, through reason. Yet today, reason has a battle on its hands. I want to confront the epidemic of irrational, superstitious thinking. Would you understand somebody on the spirit side with the name Charles? I believe that I did. You really believe it? I believe absolutely Seriously, 100% you believe it? that it's true, because it's been proven to me against my rationality. It's a multi-million pound industry that impoverishes our culture. Astrology leans toward the divine and the sacred, words which I know you don't like very much. And throws up new age gurus who exhort us to run away from reality. The cleanness is the spiritual quality. Or the rockness. Or the rockness. As a scientist, I don't think our indulgence of irrational superstition is harmless. I believe it profoundly undermines civilization. Reason and a respect for evidence are the source of our progress, our safeguard against fundamentalists and those who profit from obscuring the truth. We live in dangerous times when superstition is gaining ground and rational science is under attack. In this program, I want to take on the enemies of reason. Three hundred years ago, in the Age of Enlightenment, scientists and philosophers from Galileo to David Hume had the courage to stand up for intellectual principles and reason. 
The rational science they pioneered has given us tangible benefits. Everything from antibiotics to electricity, sewage systems to sat-nav. And it's not just material progress. Increased life expectancy, health and leisure provided by modern medicine and industrial technology have given more people more time than ever before to educate themselves, express their creativity and ponder existence. And yet, into this better world that reason has built, primitive darkness is coming back, a disturbing pick and mix of superstitions. Richard Dawkins from The Enemies of Reason Part 1. It's a fantastic documentary series. If you haven't seen it, you really need to. Go to richarddawkins.net and you can order a copy of the DVD or at least you can watch clips off YouTube. Dawkins is making a call out for the ideals of the Enlightenment in this series, the Enlightenment being a period of history where science and rationality were seen as the major driving force behind human reason, as behind human progress. Now, to some extent that has been knocked back in this day and age, possibly because of some of the problems caused by science and technology, but also, I think, because people have learnt to take it for granted. If you'd like to continue on with the ideals of the Enlightenment, then one small way you can start, certainly, is by understanding the rules of logic. More importantly, understanding just informal reasoning and understanding what a fallacy is. Because if you understand fallacies, you can start to remove them from your own arguments and also identify the errors in reasoning of others. And by doing that, you're able to avoid error and try and seek the truth as much as possible. And that is one of the major goals of the Enlightenment. With that in mind, this particular edition of Hunting Humbug 101 is the On the Road edition, and we're going to look at the art of humbug detection. So without further ado, here we go. It starts. Welcome to the On the Road edition of Hunting Humbug 101. Uh... Dad and I have gone for a drive up to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland where we live and we've gone and seen a talk uh, at uh, embiggenbooks.com, uh, a fantastic name, obviously Embiggen from The Simpsons, uh, by the last year's winner for the prize in critical thinking for the Australian skeptics, Peter Ellerton. And he did a talk on deception detecting for kids, for life, and all about critical thinking. Uh, and so Peter's someone I intend to get on the podcast later on to talk a little bit about what he does in schools, specifically teaching the subject philosophy and reason. But uh, in light of our talk, we thought we'd do an on-the-road edition and specifically looking at how to use um, your understanding of fallacies uh, and how to use our book Humbug if you you know have a copy of it or use the e-book of it. So what we're going to do is we're going to um, uh, d- read a little bit uh, about the art of humbug detection We're going to use a little bit from a worksheet uh, that um, Dad has written for his course for students that we have, uh, that we've altered a little bit for this this, um, podcast, and also read a little bit from the introduction to the paperback edition of Humbug. So... uh, but first of all, go, Dad. Thanks for coming for the drive. Good afternoon. No problem. My car, my petrol. Yep. And I appreciate you driving home whilst I'm uh, nodding off to sleep. Yeah. Well, let's. You got to stay awake and keep me awake. Okay. The purpose and usage of the book Humbug. The short title of this book is Humbug. 
Humbug may be defined as deceptive or false talk or behaviour. That's from the Oxford Dictionary. Our general aim in writing this book was to create a tool for the detection of humbug, whether humbug is spoken or written. Humbug is intended to serve two main purposes. A ready reference, which may be consulted as required during discussions, forums, debates, lectures, public talks, seminars and tutorials, whether such events are part of a formal program of study or open to the broader community. A guide to be consulted as a part of the reading and writing process, particularly by students as they research and write seminar papers or essays for assessment purposes. Humbug is a tool to be consulted as the occasion demands, rather than a book to be read in a linear fashion from beginning to end. Users may find it to be a useful resource for those occasions when they read or hear a suspect statement or claim and they want to identify the flawed reasoning in the assertion and perhaps respond to the claim with informed scepticism. The subtitle of the book is The Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Thinking, where skeptic is a person inclined to question or doubt accepted opinions. The sceptical inquirer, whether a student, an academic or a member of the public, is a person who has the habit of questioning assertions made by others. Scepticism is a desirable trait in any person in any walk of life and is an essential foundation of scholarship. However, scepticism is sometimes confused with cynicism and it is important to preserve the distinction. A person who is cynical is one who believes that people are motivated purely by self-interest. The outlook of a cynic is often contemptuous and mocking. The outlook of a sceptic by contrast, is positive and productive. He or she assumes nothing about motives and is focused on deeper understanding of issues and of real solutions to real problems. The core of this book does not concern itself with the structure of good arguments or with models of inquiry. Rather, the content focuses on error. The underlying premise is that if individuals become astute at identifying and critiquing flawed arguments, they will become more skilled at identifying sound arguments presented by others and in formulating sound arguments of their own. When students, journalists, writers and participants in discussions and debates know what not to do in presenting an argument, they will develop a more sound perception of what they should do. From our perspective, the elimination of fallacious reasoning is the most important foundation of a sound argument. This book is therefore analogous to a scalpel. A surgeon uses a scalpel to remove diseased tissue. The sceptical inquirer can use this book to remove diseased arguments. A biologist uses a scalpel to remove extraneous tissue from a specimen in order to expose the essential structure of the specimen to scrutiny. In this same way, humbug may be used to identify and remove poor reasoning from the reader's own arguments and to allow the reader to examine and expose poor reasoning in the arguments of others. Style and Treatment the writing style of Humbug is not disinterested and scholarly. It's deliberately assertive, over-the-top and declamatory. We frequently resort to the use of irony, overstatement and oversimplification in order to emphasise salient features of the fallacy under consideration. For this reason, we will no doubt cause offence to most readers at some point. So be it. The goal of the critical thinker is not to win an argument at all costs, but to seek the truth. In this book, the sceptical critical thinker is described variously as a detached inquirer, a doubter, a reasonable person, a dedicated debunker, 
all these labels are appropriate in the specific context described. However, the commonest alternate label for the critical thinker or skeptic used throughout this book is the seeker after truth. This seemingly long-winded usage is quite deliberate. A person claiming to know the truth about any issue invites endless and unresolved controversy when engaged in argument or debate. A seeker after truth, on the other hand, is one who believes that reasoned inquiry can move a debate forward towards better understanding of an issue. While ultimate truth on many issues may be unknowable, we can at least move forward from egregious ignorance and error by using skilled, dispassionate, disinterested reasoning. The Art of Humbug Detection Why should we be be sceptical about the views of educationists and pontificators? Most knowledge in education, and any other field you like, is provisional, and over the course of time many educational certainties prove to be false or misleading. Academics in education and bureaucrats working in education systems often have an axe to grind or a view of the world which they hope will prevail. When educationistas and other pontificators write or speak, they often dress up mere opinions as well-rounded, research-based certainties. Be afraid. Be very afraid of dogmatism masquerading as superior insight. Note that you won't find the term educationistas in any dictionary. It's a coinage used here to denote an educator with an ideologue as opposed to humble and open-minded. We all need to develop our capacity to identify and challenge humbug. Teachers need to protect themselves against control freak educationists. Our best protection against those who attempt to shape schools and schooling through their tendentious writing and research is healthy scepticism. Healthy scepticism needs to be underpinned by tools of analysis. Humbug provides these tools. The tools are the informal fallacies in thinking named and described in the book. Once a reader is sensitised to a range of these fallacies, he or she is able to recognise them in writings of educationists and other pontificators and is less vulnerable to, we've got to use it, there's no better word, please forgive us if it causes offence, bullshit. How to use humbug to challenge humbug. When you're ready to get serious about critiquing a pontificator, you should reread what they have said more carefully with the humbug appendix contents open on the desk. When you read a dodgy statement, see if you can find a name for it. That is, does it appear to be one of the fallacies named and described in humbug? Make preliminary notes at first and then check your initial impressions about the nature of the fallacies you have spotted by reading the more extensive descriptions in the body of humbug. It's dangerous to rely on the brief descriptions in the appendix contents are necessarily brief and therefore somewhat ambiguous. A grossly simplified example. Suppose an author, Bonehead 2007, makes a statement like this. There is only one reason a student ever comes late to class, a bad attitude. You could critique this statement by writing, That's just bullshit. While Bonehead's statement might, in fact, be bullshit. Your criticism is disastrously weak. You might beef up your criticism by giving a reason for your view. For example, you could write, This statement is bull because Bonehead is a Unfortunately, this is not much of an improvement to your original response, even if Bonehead is in fact a An effective critique of Bonehead's statement might be worded as follows. Bonehead's statement is in error because he is employing the single cause fallacy. In particular, 
His claim that there is only one reason is clearly far too extreme. Single-cause fallacies occur when a person assumes there is only one cause of a complex problem. Bonehead fails to recognise that in, in reality there are many possible reasons why a particular student may be late to class on a particular occasion. So, what's your initial take on the following statements? Statement number one. You cannot understand what I'm saying because you lack my experience and insights. Statement number two. You're just arguing with my proposition because you hate me personally. Statement number three. I don't trust that statement because it was made by someone from the teachers' union. Statement number four. Everybody knows that rewarding students for studying by giving them free time is a form of bribery. So we'll give you our answers at the end of the podcast, but right now it's time for us to drive back to Brisbane. Be afraid. Be very afraid. And I'd also point out to uh, the listeners how odd this looked because we've just had someone walk up, uh, Warren from the shop walk by and say goodnight to us and here we are sitting in a car reading our own book. <laughs> so, yeah, we are egotistical, but, you know, that probably looked a little odd. So, Warren, if you happen to listen to this podcast, mate, we're not that weird. Okay, it's a little odd, sure. <laughs> I'm uh, going to stick with the very odd. <laughs> Uh, one observation I'd like to make about what we just experienced, the event we just experienced, and it was by invitation a uh, gathering of people, um, all sceptics of one stripe or another, listening to someone talking about what he's doing in teaching scepticism in senior high school, uh, is it's, it's actually good to get together physically as a group from time to time, even though sceptics can share information on blogs and via writing and the like. Um, it's Some of the conversations I had tonight were less formal, uh, quite humorous, and also sparked ideas in ways perhaps that uh, wouldn't have happened if I'd been reading an article. No, that's right. I think it's also, it is a, it is a, something that, um, say, religions do very well and so on, is having a community. Um, and so that's one of the appeals to those groups is having a community. So you run into dangers, of course, with groupthink and all that kind of stuff, but um, but the main thing is, yeah, it's actually a face-to-face conversation with like-minded people is always engaging uh, and, you know, can, can fire up some more enthusiasm and also give you real um, ideas because uh, you don't get um, real ideas often just from the internet. You get it from talking to people and engaging with them. So absolutely, yeah. And the other thing you talked about really... Was, was just actually explicitly teaching thinking skills to people um, because the big kind of key word in education is to uh, embed, cur- embed it in curriculum and so on. But it's a nice word, but does it actually work in practice? And I don't know that it does. Uh, there's also um, still, on the basis of his findings, um, some doubts as to whether there's causation mm. um, happening where... Students who are taught critical thinking skills uh, do better in other subjects because of their learning those critical thinking skills. Uh, there's the old problem of causation, correlation there, and no doubt if he takes this 
um, research further, you'll have to find some way of eliminating uh, of the, showing the possibility cause of causation. Direction, yeah, yeah. Uh, both, both, both may be in fact related to a third variable. There may be kids, the proxy for example, cause, yeah, who yeah. Um, are keen on doing extra work or different work or novel work, and they're brighter. Yeah. And they've chosen to take this new subject and they would have gotten higher results in their other subject. Anyway. Sorry, Dad, can I just interrupt you? Do you have any idea where the hell I am? No, I, I've got no idea. Do you mean intellectually or actually on the road? On the road. No, I, I have no oh, idea. Some people are walking there, we'll follow them, they won't be a bit slow. No, I'm, I'm going towards you Monday, I think that's all right. Yeah, look, um, I think if you see a sign, Brisbane. Yeah. Uh, That's the problem with road signs in Australia for our foreign listeners. They don't ever give you actual signs to the place you're going. They give it to you the next nearest place. So if you don't know every single place along the way, you don't know how to get to where you're going. I I honestly believe that if we wanted to drive to Brisbane, which we do, that this is not the right place to start from. All other destinations to the left. It specifically says all other all destinations. destinations. So it takes you everywhere you want to go. Everywhere you want to go. Yeah. I think uh, it's important there that some of our listeners realise that we oh, are Lord. only human. Yeah. Well, you didn't bring your GPS, you idiot, so... I, um, I, ha- I have this intuitive feeling. All right. Um, to get back on fallacy specifically, and I think um, that's one of the reasons why we teach them explicitly and what we tried to get out of that point there, you know, it was a satirical take, but certainly, um, and and for sure, there's no doubt about this, so I'm not sceptical. When you teach it explicitly, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of them, they might not remember specifically how to use fallacies and whatnot, but yeah, so when you teach it explicitly, that does raise consciousness to the idea there are fallacies, and then it might make spark someone to go, well, maybe I can find out uh, the specific error in reasoning someone is using, and even if it's not the specific one, at least you can kind of point out where the logical error is even if you can't name it and I think so teaching it explicitly is something we've always tried to do in in, um, the courses we teach at university and you know not everyone takes it on board of course but uh, when they do they really run with it and they really enjoy learning about how to pick flaws in people's reasoning I I think there um, are a lot of people out there who are just aching to find the technology, if you like, of critiquing mm. arguments. They, they know that so much that they're exposed to is honestly, uh, there's no other word for it, bullshit. Yep. They can identify it as, as such and they can call it that, but that's where the criticism ends and they're really aching for um, the tools a, to a be kind of it. taxonomy of ways of... Um, of uh, critiquing things which they know, know to be wrong. No, and actually, I suppose it would be good to give you a, a personal kind of experience of it, which is... Um... I can give an anecdote that shows how that might work. Um, if if um, well, one of my students, a female student, said she bought a copy of the book because it was a prescribed text for one of my courses, and she had started reading through the book, and she had the aha experience all the way through, you know, and, and she said her husband began to feel very threatened because they'd have arguments about things, not not family things, but rather philosophical uh, things, things to do with yeah. philosophy, philosophy and the news and so on. And he kept on losing, and he inquired as to how she developed these forensic skills. And uh, 
she told him and so he bought a copy of the book and then a couple of their friends bought copies of the book uh, that they mixed with socially and actually they, she said they had great arguments because instead of defending hostile positions and, and sort of you know, erecting parapets and so on they, they were actually more likely to be interested in seeking the truth so they'd start off with different opinions and willing to change their but mind because they had all read the book and they understood the value of, of um, uh, stripping away peripheral materials and uh, analysing arguments it, it's, it's worthwhile having these as deeply embedded uh, habits of mind and uh, if you read the book and you start practising and you look at news bulletins and uh, current affairs shows you will develop a habit of mind that, that is very resistant to propaganda yeah no and although a little aside to that one I actually did meet her last year she's since divorced <laughs> so, so you know be careful who you decide to debate and, and uh, she's also started harassing me and I've had to, had to get a restraining order yeah. and stuff and she has to stay more than 50 metres away yeah. from me at all times. Well, she wasn't cute, so... <laughs> <laughs> Alright, anyway, that's uh, our bit of a chat, our bit of a, the driving phallicists. Uh, and if this works really well, we may go the next step and have a cycling one. Ooh. Uh, no, no one was here, I was panting. <laughs> <laughs> and it's good night from me, and it's good night from him. <laughs> Okay, so here's a clip from Peter Ellerton off YouTube, uh, who I saw talk tonight, and I tend to get him on the podcast, as I said, uh, talking specifically about hidden premises. Uh, it's a video you can look at on his website, pactus.org, philosophy and critical thinkers in secondary schools, which I'll put a link to from the website. Welcome to Pactus.org and the podcast of philosophical and critical thinking points and how to make them in the classroom. Today we're going to look at the notion of the hidden premise. Now, in any argument, you'll have a series of premises, points you assume to be true for the purposes of the argument, and it's from those premises you draw the conclusion. But not all premises are explicitly stated all the time in an argument. Here's a good example. Homosexuality is unnatural. Therefore, it's wrong. Now, the stated premise is that homosexuality is unnatural. Well, we might argue that point. But the hidden premise, the assumption that's not stated explicitly, and you probably guessed it, is that unnatural things are wrong. So the argument really goes, homosexuality is unnatural, unnatural things are wrong, therefore homosexuality is wrong. Now, let's explore that hidden premise unnatural things are wrong. Brain surgery, modern medicine, ballpoint pens. Are these things wrong simply because they're unnatural? Now the interesting thing about this is that the hidden premise is usually much more easily attackable than the stated premises. And in fact, sometimes people making the argument aren't even aware 
that the hidden premise exists or that they hold that point of view. So when you're looking at an argument, listen very carefully for the hidden premise and see if that in itself might be enough to demolish the cause. Now, a couple of other things to uh, finish off this episode. The first thing is regarding the uh, iTunes reviews. Now, not being an, uh, an Apple fanboy, I didn't realise until you know I looked into it that iTunes actually has different stores for different countries. Like I, I knew that, but I didn't realise the reviews for a particular country were only you could only see that when you're in that particular country's store. So if you want to email me uh, with your review, make sure you tell me what country it's for, because otherwise I won't. You know, I don't want to go around looking for uh, through every single different country to see what the reviews are. So, I, I, as a matter of fact, we did already have some reviews from, say, the UK and so on uh, before all my whinging was going on. So, thank you for those people who've left us nice reviews. The other thing I wanted to uh, finish off this episode with was the answers to those different uh, four different potential fallacies that we listed at the beginning of the uh, episode. The first statement was, uh, you cannot understand what I'm saying because you lack my experience and insights. So that one would probably be special pleading. Um, if you have a look in the, the short definition of special pleading from the uh, book, you'll see that it says the advocate claims special insights into an issue and that the opponent is incapable of achieving the same level of understanding. So that one's pretty clearly special pleading. The second one is... You're just arguing with my proposition because you hate me personally. So that would be impugning motives, where you're looking at the um, the advocate makes an unwarranted claim that the opponent has devious motives, so the motives there are just because you don't like the person. That might be uh, why you're arguing with them, but that's not necessarily why they would disagree with them. The other, the next one, the third one was... I don't trust that statement because it was made by someone from the teachers' union. So that would be poisoning the well. So that's where you're linking it. Um, so it says the advocate seeks to undermine an opponent's position by linking the position to an original source which was uh, unjustly denigrated. So linking it to the teachers' union there. And the last one was... Everybody knows that rewarding students for studying by giving them free time is just a form of bribery. So you've probably got two there. You've got popular opinion by saying that everybody knows. So the advocate makes an unwarranted appeal to a popular opinion, e.g. most people agree that in support of a proposition. And, of course, the false analogy by saying that uh, it's just in the form of bribery. So linking it to bribery there. Um, so false analogy... Uh, as it says in the book, is the advocate puts forward an analogy in support of a case where the analogy only has superficial similarities to the case in question. You could argue also perhaps that is a weasel word because it says the advocate uses emotionally loaded labels to boost his or her position to denigrate the opponent's position. So the actual the fact that bribery would be seen as a negative connotation is where you could say it's a weasel word. So that's a good example where you know, you've potentially got three fallacies just in one sentence. Okay, so that's the end of the show. I hope it's uh, next week we'll look at a particular fallacy again. We'll probably do, um, going to use a little bit more from the enemies of reason throughout a few more um, podcasts because there's some good examples of some fallacious reading throughout that, unsurprisingly. So uh, if you haven't seen it, I can't recommend enough. Have a look at the enemies of reason, but there'll be bits of it uh, on our show as well when we're trying to, when I'm hunting for different clips. If you've got any clips you've thought of or seen, send them in because it's much easier if I've got some more people doing some research for me. So thanks for all those people who've been writing the views on iTunes and you'll be hearing from me next week.
So that was a rebroadcast episode of Hunting Humbug 101. For more information about the show and the book, Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Deceptive Arguments, head to www.skepticsfieldguide.net. Mm-hmm.